Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In 1999, in Prince William County, Virginia, Rebecca Gregg and her boyfriend Robert Finch had just gone through a nasty breakup. At the center of their contention was a custody dispute over their two young children. Also residing in the county was Larry Elliott, who went by his middle name Bill. He spent a couple years in college before being drafted into the Army in December 1970. Three years later, he was assigned to counterintelligence, where he received intelligence and weapons training. Bill had a strong work ethic and moved his way up, where he worked overseas, detecting enemy bugs and safeguarding military communications. Along the way, Bill got married and had three children, but the marriage didn't last and in 1976, he married for a second time and had a daughter. In 1990, after 20 years of service, Bill left the Army and found employment in the private sector doing the same type of work. But by 1999, Bill, who was now 50 years old, was getting bored with his marriage. The passion was gone, so he turned to the Internet. On an adult matchmaking website, he came across an ad by 31-year-old Rebecca Gregg. Her photo caught his eye. Her ad was straightforward. She was looking for a sugar daddy. The Washington Post reported that her electricity and phone had been cut off and she was having difficulty supporting her children. Working as a private escort and an exotic dancer, she was looking to turn her life in a new direction, and to do that, she needed financial help. Bill sent her an email, never expecting a response, and was surprised when she replied. The couple met at a restaurant. Court records reported that Rebecca was up front with him, saying she was not interested in a romantic or sexual relationship with him. Rather, she only wanted friendship and money. Bill agreed to her terms, and a few days later gave her a check for almost $7,000. But Bill became obsessed with Rebecca, constantly telling her he loved her and showering her with gifts. While Rebecca greedily accepted the gifts, she became uncomfortable with his advances and distanced herself from him. Bill reacted by showing up unannounced at places he knew she would be. Bill pretended Rebecca was an employee at a brewing company he owned in West Virginia and gave her a credit card in the name of Rebecca Elliott. 
He hired a private investigator to help her with her custody struggle with Robert, but the investigation didn't uncover anything useful. What Bill didn't know is that Rebecca still had feelings for Robert, and she told him to stop interfering. In December 2000, Bill emailed a friend who still worked for U.S. Army Intelligence. He and Brandon Jackson had known each other almost a decade, and Bill knew Brandon had a federal license as a firearms dealer. Bill told Brandon that he and some co-workers wanted to establish a gun range for practice shooting and asked if Brandon could get him a silencer. When Brandon opened the email, he thought it was a foolish question because gun silencers are never used for practice shooting. A silencer becomes less effective every time it is used and he wasn't interested in helping Bill obtain one. Then Bill typed a long and rambling email to Rebecca, telling her that he had people working on this issue, referring to her custody battle. And he went on to say that once her issue was taken care of, the two of them could have a relationship. He ended the email by telling her that he loved her. Bill was a man possessed. Rebecca told him she'd gotten back together with Robert and that she was in love with him. But instead of backing off, Bill told her that a man named Jerry was checking up on her, so she better stay in line. Bill grabbed her arm and told her to take him seriously because people's lives were in danger and that if she went to the police, those people would be killed. Over a period of 18 months, Bill spent a total of $400,000 on Rebecca. He bought her a vehicle, paid her breast implant surgery, paid the mortgage payments on her house, paid for her cell phone, and paid for her children to attend private school. He also helped her fund a pay-per-view pornographic website that she ran. And all during this time, his wife had no idea. Bill wrote his wife's personal financial information down on a piece of paper and gave it to Rebecca and told her to pose as his wife on the phone and transfer money out of her account to the tune of $200,000. Rebecca was afraid of what Jerry might do, so she did as she was told. Bill then threw the paper away, but when he wasn't looking, Rebecca retrieved it. Bill was living a life he couldn't afford. His mistress had run up credit card debt that he couldn't pay. He was forced to sell off investments to pay the bills. Rebecca took her children to Florida to ring in the new year. Her visitation agreement stated she had to return them to Robert by 2 p.m. on New Year's Day. She was rushing to get back when her car started acting up, and she knew she wouldn't make it back in time. At 3.28 a.m. on January 2nd, Bill's cell phone battery was low, 
He pulled into a convenience store and used a payphone to call Rebecca. She answered, but the connection wasn't clear, and she thought it was Robert. When Bill realized who she thought she was talking to, he told her he was tired of this shit, and he'd take care of it. Rebecca now realized it was Bill, but it was too late. He'd hung up. She tried to call him back, but got his voicemail. At 4 a.m., Bill parked his pickup truck on Belfry Lane, around the corner from Robert's townhouse. A woman delivering newspapers spotted him standing beside his truck with a flashlight. There had been several vehicle break-ins in the neighborhood, and his behavior was suspicious, so she contacted police. Unaware, Bill walked up the street, crossed over to Jouster's Way, and walked in between two townhouses. It's not known exactly what transpired, but it's thought Bill knocked on the door of the townhouse, where Robert was living with Dana Thrall and her two young children. Robert answered the door and was gunned down. A shot to his chest, his back, and his head. Robert was dead at 30. Dana was likely asleep upstairs and heard the shots and ran down towards the only phone. In the kitchen, Bill caught up with her and pointed the gun. She raised her hand up in self-defense as he pulled the trigger. The bullet hit her hand. Another hit her chest. The gun was empty. She felt the butt of the gun hit the back of her head. Bill reloaded. Then three bullets rang into her skull. Bill quickly left out the back door and ran to the gate in the fence. But it was locked. He ran back through the house and out the front door. The next-door neighbor heard a crash sound followed by three or four hollow-type sounds. Then, someone screaming. She called police. Another neighbor out walking his dog. Her two loud banging noises, then a woman's scream. Then three more loud bangs. He flew home and told his wife to call police. He looked back over at the townhouse and saw the front storm door swinging. Meanwhile, a police officer arrived on Belfry Lane, and a woman pointed out the truck. The officer noticed it was locked. On the windshield was a Department of Defense identification sticker and a cell phone on the passenger seat. Five minutes later, a second officer knocked on the townhouse door. The officer on Belfry Lane received a call on his radio to respond to a domestic dispute on Jouster's Way. He arrived at the house and seeing an officer at the front door, he went around to the back. But the yard was surrounded by a fence and the gate was locked. He could hear a dog barking. He returned to the front and between the shades in the front window, he could see a gap. 
He peered in. Laying on the floor, he spotted legs. The second officer then tried the doorknob. He walked in to see Robert. The first officer immediately ran to the back and secured the property. When backup arrived moments later, he ran back around the corner to where the pickup had been parked, but it was gone. Heading back to the townhouse, he looked up and spotted something in the upstairs window. He raced back inside and flew up the stairs and discovered Dana's two young sons. Only four and six years old, they were unharmed, but scared and crying. Moments later, another officer arrived and heard muffled sounds coming from the kitchen. There, he found Dana, lying in a pool of blood, barely alive. An ambulance rushed her to a helicopter, and she was flown to a hospital in Washington but later died from her injuries. Dana was 25. Bill called Rebecca numerous times. He told her that Jerry had come out of nowhere to help him and that their problems had been taken care of. Back at the house, a crime scene analyst collected blood samples from the interior, then outside discovered a blood stain on the inside of the gate. Police quickly learned of Robert's custody dispute with Rebecca and interviewed her. She denied knowing anything and played down her relationship with Bill. Detectives then paid Bill a visit at the Fort Meade Army Base in Hanover, where he was a civilian working in counterintelligence. They spotted Bill's truck in the parking lot. Sitting on the seat was a flashlight, cell phone, and a box of bandages. Answering their questions, he denied any relationship with Rebecca other than business. One of the detectives told Bill that his truck had been seen in the neighborhood when the murders occurred. Bill denied he was there. He voluntarily accompanied detectives to the police station. Eventually, he admitted the true nature of his relationship with Rebecca and that he knew where Robert lived, and even acknowledged to driving there to take photos of him to prove he was an unfit father. He confessed that he'd gotten out of his truck and walked by the townhouse, but never went on the property and never heard gunshots or any screams. Detectives interviewed Bill again four days later. He stuck by his story. A search warrant was issued for his pickup truck. A crime scene analyst determined that the interior of the truck had been recently cleaned. The carpet was still wet. Trace amounts of blood were collected, but were too degraded for DNA testing. Detectives continued to build their case. The blood samples from inside the townhouse came back to Robert and Dana, but the bloodstain found on the gate didn't belong to either one of them. DNA testing came back, a perfect match to Bill. On May 9th, Bill was arrested. Once police had Bill in custody, they interviewed Rebecca again. 
They told her there was no Jerry, that he'd been made up. Rebecca was given a polygraph. Afterwards, the detective told her that her responses indicated she was being untruthful. Rebecca asked to speak with a lawyer, then agreed to tell them what she knew. And remember that piece of paper Bill had written down his wife's financial information? Rebecca turned it over to police. Bill was charged with capital murder for Dana's death and first-degree murder for Roberts, plus two counts of use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. At Bill's trial, the DNA evidence was presented, and although the gun had never been recovered, forensic testing of the ten bullets recovered from the crime scene indicated they had all been fired from the same gun. In July 2002, the jury found Bill guilty. He was sentenced to death. But when a judge learned that one of the jurors had inappropriately discussed the case with a family member, a mistrial was declared. Bill's second trial began in March 2003. Brandon testified about the email he received from Bill wanting to buy a silencer. And Rebecca testified in great length about their relationship. Bill was found guilty for the second time and sentenced to death. Bill maintained his innocence right up until the end. His choice for leaving this world was the electric chair. On November 17, 2009, 60-year-old Bill was the 46th murderer to be executed that year in the United States. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Eric Pearson. He grew up violent and angry and by the age of 17, attempted murder. Sentenced to 18 years, he was paroled after only four years. Back in society, he murdered Christina. And free again after 27 years, it was only a year before he murdered again. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.